Locked on NBA. The biggest stories, the local experts. Every Monday, we dig into the biggest stories in the NBA with the Locked On Podcast Network hosts. Today, we go to LA to speak with Charles Mockler of Locked On Clippers about the Clippers making the Western Conference Finals for the first time and their Game 1 loss against the Phoenix Suns. We speak with Kane Pittman of Locked On Bucks about Milwaukee beating Brooklyn in Game 7 and heading to the Eastern Conference Finals. And lastly... We speak with Ku Khalil of Locked On Pistons as he gives his thoughts on Game 7 between Atlanta and Philadelphia. It's all coming up. The biggest stories with the local experts on Locked On NBA. You are Locked On NBA, your daily NBA podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Hi guys, and welcome back to another week of Locked On NBA. I am your Monday host, Josh Lloyd. I'm also the host of the Locked On Fantasy Basketball Podcast and the lead analyst at BasketballMonster.com and Yahoo Sports Australia. So we're here. We have got the uh, the conference final set, the West and the East. We've had game one of the Western Conference Finals, and then we had the Eastern Conference Finals decided today. So let's let's get into it. Let's, In fact, let's get to it. Now we talk to one of the hosts of the Locked On Clippers podcast, Charles Mockler is here with me straight after Game 1, where the Clippers, uh, they went down to the Phoenix Suns, 121-14. Let's start with some positive things first, Charles. How does it feel uh, for the Clippers fans and Clippers organization to, to actually be in the conference finals for the first time in their history? Uh, it, I mean, it feels pretty surreal. After, I mean, the quick turnaround doesn't really help any of it after the insanity that was Game 6, and then you have less than 48 hours before you're in your first Western Conference final. Um, I think delirious delirium is probably the best word, honestly. Um, it didn't really feel real until tip off happened, but you know, it was a loss, but they, they fought hard and they don't look afraid of the spotlight, which is great. So the game was, it was pretty tight. Obviously both teams missing stars, Kawhi Leonard out for the Clippers, Chris Paul out for the Suns. What's the latest with Kawhi? We know he's not going to be playing in these first two games. He's got what Shams Sharania is yeah, deeming an ACL injury, but we don't actually know what that is. Oh, I don't believe we know what that is. So what's what are we expecting for Kawhi? Would you think that he plays at all in this series? I, oof. well, I mean, you know, we Kawhi's medical team and the Clippers are pretty tight-lipped when it comes to injury stuff. And, you know, what the public knows is pretty much what kind of all the beat writers and everything know. I personally... I don't know if we'll see Kawhi in this series. Um, if you know, maybe if it goes six or seven for sure, which I think it probably will. So there's a small chance, but you know, he's still in LA, so he's missing these first two games, and with no real substantial updates, it's you know not easy to say what for sure is going to happen. But given that it is a knee, and you know, he's a cautious uh, player when it comes to injuries, and the Clippers are cautious with him, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be shocked if he's not in this second round. Um. We we've seen Ty Lu go down and the Clippers go down you know, two oh two in the first two series and you know it's it's a bit of a meme I guess at this point to say oh yeah you know, the Clippers they're just getting where they want them to be down oh two to begin things but that is you know a, a bad thing and a good thing I think because it means that there is you know some I don't know if it's poor preparedness to begin a series but it's also some excellent changes mid series now we saw Rajon Rondo taken out of the rotation in that uh, in that last series against the Jazz because he was playing horribly. But he was back today. 22 minutes <laughs> and a team worst minus 14. What do we... Like, what, what is Ty Lu Like, is, was this in terms of coaching? Was it like, well, I'm just going to go back to how I've started each of the last two series and then we'll make adjustments again. Did he not learn any lessons here? Like, what was the... 
What was the impetus for Rondo coming back in? Do you see a change happening? And is there any is there any magic rotation decisions he can make to sort of uh, to, to change this narrative for uh, game two? I think this specific series, this was a fatigue, you know, situation with the rotations. Um, Rajan Rondo, you know, supposedly is here for some playmaking, but there are a couple possessions that had zero passes and ended in him missing at the rim, which he's done at kind of an absurd rate in those playoffs. Like you said, he was minus 14, so the defense isn't really there. Um, Boogie Cousins came in and played very effectively, but still minus 11. You know, he had a great dunk on Saric, but when DeAndre Ayton came in and DeMarcus Cousins had to play defense on him, it was not going as well. So I think you can chalk up DeMarcus Cousins 13 minutes and Rajon Rondo's 22 minutes to fatigue. There is a big question, though, with Marcus Morris now. With his knee, um, he kind of took a knock and only played six minutes in the second half. So... Tyloo has a lot more to figure out, kind of sadly, as we go into game two. Um, Clippers fans can be pretty confident. We've seen him make good adjustments. But, you know, how many adjustments does he have to make before it runs out, I guess? Um, I have to imagine we'll see a little bit more Luke Kennard than seven minutes in this game, especially with his shooting, which, you know, the Clippers took 47 threes. So Kennard probably needs more time if the three-point attempts are going to be there. But I think this was a fatigue game, and I personally hope we see – you know, if possible, a tightened up rotation for game two. But a lot of major guys got a lot of heavy minutes. Paul George, um, Reggie, and Nick Batum all played really close to 40 minutes, which isn't ideal. Let's talk about Paul George now because, of course, he's, again, an easy target for slander through many, many seasons. And, you know, I think a lot of that is is unfair. But, you know, we are seeing George show people who think that, A, he didn't deserve the All-NBA nod or people that think that he's, you know, this playoff choker. Yeah, just how good he's been. And these last two games in particular without Kawhi Leonard have been amazing. Well, last three games, actually, from Paul George. So just, you know, how how important has he been? And, and for people who haven't watched the Clippers every game all season, how far off you know, from what he did during the regular season is, is the Paul George we're seeing now? Because to my mind, while he's elevated a little bit, he was still really good during the season. So to me, that's like, this is, you know, for the people who didn't see, this is sort of what he's been like most of the year. Yeah, I mean, Kawhi, anytime Kawhi went down this season, Paul George has stepped up and carried the Clippers. Um, him and Reggie Jackson, basically. Um, but I mean, Paul George in game one, he took 15 three-point attempts, which I think everyone has to be happy about. We all want Paul George to be more aggressive from beyond the arc. Um, he got to the line eight times, which you like to see another, you know, with Paul George, it is aggression. You want him to be taking shots. You want him to be getting to his spots. But I mean, when Kawhi is out, we've needed him to put up over 25 or something like that. And he's answered the call every single time. So I hope he can rest up before game two, because we're going to need, um, we're going to need more performances like this with Kawhi out. And it's, it's not it's not impossible. We've seen it all year. Um, we just, you know, we got to hope we have some more bodies that are going to be ready for game two. So if we're going to talk about former Thunder players who stepped up big in the playoffs, <laughs> we have to talk about Reggie Jackson, who, yeah, again, last season when he came across uh, from the buyout after the Pistons, he had some uh, pretty significant struggles at times. He had some struggles at times this year. And we saw you know, games where... There were you know, Rondo would get his minutes, or guys like Mann or Canard would play over him at times. But he has been unbelievable in these playoffs. He's hitting a ton, ton of big threes. He scored another 24 points today. He appears absolutely locked in as the starting point guard on this team for the rest of the way. Um, what's been the big difference? Because, again, it hasn't always been smooth sailing for Reggie Jackson here with LA. So what's been the big change, the big switch here for him? I think he's just more comfortable with a more defined role. Um, last season, there were some issues kind of with guys 
not fully understanding what their job on the team was. And this year with Ty Lue, he's got everyone playing to their exact role, to their strengths. Reggie Jackson, with how hurt Patrick Beverly was, was effectively our starting point guard for almost the whole season. Um, I think it's a comfortability thing. He's always been a good shooter. It's just been the decision-making with his shots, as fans of teams that Reggie Jackson's played on will probably back me up on. Um, but, you know, they, they're getting open looks. Those are perfect for Reggie Jackson. And the big issue has been turnovers. He had five um, in game one, which is kind of where you get a little upset at his play style sometimes. But I mean, if he's scoring 24 points when we absolutely need it, there's there's not a whole lot you can be mad at Reggie Jackson for. Yeah, you, you couldn't be mad at anything, really, the way that he's playing <laughs> in the playoffs. He's been uh, sensational. The Clippers are going to need to bounce back now for Game 2 against Phoenix coming up in a couple of days. Charles, you'll have it covered for us all over on Locked On Clippers. Thanks for coming on Locked On NBA with me. Yep, thank you so much, Josh. You're the hiring expert for your company, and what you really need is help making your shortlist of quality candidates. You need a hiring partner who helps make your life easier. You need Indeed. Indeed is the job site that makes hiring as easy as one, two, three, post, screen, and interview all on Indeed. You can get your quality list of sh- uh, quality shortlist of candidates whose resumes on Indeed match your job description faster. You only pay for the candidates that meet the must-have qualifications, and you can schedule and you can complete your video interviews in your Indeed dashboard. Indeed makes connecting with and hiring the right talent faster and easy. You can choose from more than 130 skills tests and then add your must-have requirements so that you only pay for the applications that meet them. According to Talent Nest, Indeed delivers four times more hires than all other job sites combined. If you're hiring, you need Indeed. So get started right now with a free $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com locked. Get a $75 credit at Indeed.com locked. Indeed.com locked. Offer valid through June 30th. Terms and conditions apply. Now, let's talk to the host of the Locked On Bucks podcast. Kane Pittman is here. Milwaukee is through uh, to the conference finals after that overtime victory in Game 7 against the Brooklyn Nets. It probably didn't look like it was going to get there, Kane, especially after Game 5, but the Bucks win the last two games of that series. And uh, yeah, take it away there in Game 7 against Brooklyn. Let's have a look back, I guess, at that series and, and the things that the adjustments that needed to be made by Budenholzer because there was uh, as much slander about him as anybody on Twitter over those uh, days after Game 5. What adjustments did uh, Bud make to get the Bucks over the line through to the next round? Yeah, it's really interesting because I think if you look across the course of the entire series, the Bucks actually did a pretty impressive job defensively. Now, uh, of course, the... Brooklyn Nets were shorthanded and Kevin Durant still, I think, averaged 35 points for the series, which is a big number. But I think there was two things that we saw in Game 7. First of all, Steve Nash changed the lineup, brought in uh, Bruce Brown. Now, I'm not 100% sure if Jeff Green was fully healthy or maybe that was the reason they made the move. But I think also they liked Bruce Brown's ability to play in the pick and roll with Kevin Durant and really work that little floater or... Uh, Durant was going to pull up for a jump shot with Brooke Lopez defending Bruce Brown. So the big adjustment in Game 7, Mike Budenholzer after halftime put Giannis on Bruce Brown, really got him involved in some of those actions. And I thought that that went a long way to the Bucks. Not only being able to curtail, it sounds funny to say, the influence of Bruce Brown, but that pick-and-roll action became a little more difficult for Kevin Durant with Giannis involved. What do you make of the criticisms of um, Giannis and of uh, Bud for for Yanni uh, not guarding Durant, especially in that game five, but through the rest of the series, like he just didn't guard him as much as, you know, this defensive player of the year, why isn't he stopping the opposition's best team, uh, best player? 
Yeah, it doesn't really make sense to me. I mean, I think anyone that watched this series and saw the job that PJ Tucker did, and again, keeping in mind, you're talking about an all-time great that still was going to get his 30 points no matter what, but I think the difference with PJ Tucker over anyone else in the roster, and you could almost argue anyone else in the league, is his tenacity and his, his aggressiveness and willingness to continue to compete for seven games. Giannis is a terrific defender, but he won Defensive Player of the Year as as being that roaming defender that gets those help side blocks and and really restricts what other teams are able to do in the paint. We've seen Giannis defend Kevin Durant multiple times one-on-one, and it, it's it's not really a great matchup. He can do it one-on-one in isolation, but Giannis isn't great at getting over the top at screens. Uh, he argued that point in a postgame recently, but it's not a strength of his. So I think that we've seen in the past, if Giannis would defend Kevin Durant, they'd put him in screen action and try and get a switch there anyway. So look, I thought PJ Tucker was the right matchup. I don't really understand why there's a a need for that argument to continue to come up, but I'm sure it will happen again in the future, no doubt. So now we, we look ahead to this uh, conference finals matchup, which we don't know who the opponent is. We're recording this at, game, at halftime of game seven between Philadelphia and Atlanta. You know, we know that that's you know, that's tight at the moment. The Hawks are up by two points. It's been a really tight series. Embiid's not quite himself. Simmons is not the guy he was three years ago. He's lost a lot of lost uh, a lot of aggression, I guess we'll have to say. But yeah, in terms of a Milwaukee matchup, is it as simple as saying is it like you know the Sixers were the one seed, so they'd prefer not to face them, or is that yeah you know, is is that not an accurate assessment of how the matchups would go between these two teams? It's interesting because I'm not sure. I mean, I think both of these teams have. Their, their reasons for Milwaukee to have some concerns about the matchup. I think the big thing is, obviously, if you play Atlanta, you have home court, which could be significant. We just saw a series that went to a, to a game seven where home court was clearly key throughout. So I, I, I don't know if the Bucks would have a preference. They've certainly had some battles. And the one thing that Philadelphia does have in Embiid, even though he is a little bit banged up, but Ben Simmons, Matisse Thibel, they've got a number of really, really impressive defenders that you need to slow down someone like Giannis over the course of a series. So I do think Philadelphia would be the more difficult matchup. Uh, I don't think that that's too controversial to say that. But at the same time, I think Atlanta presents their own challenges with their ability to shoot the outside shot and their athleticism. I mean, they're a quick team. They'll push the pace and, and the Bucks. uh, uh aren't necessarily well-suited to guarding a lot of those guys. How does Brook Lopez go historically guarding Joel Embiid? Well, pretty good. I mean, and the Bucks. the one thing that the Bucks had last season, which we think was why they got his brother, was for this potential matchup with Joel Embiid. If you put a big guy on Embiid, what we saw during the regular season was basically Embiid not really scoring around the basket, but shooting a bunch of fadeaway jump shots. Now, he hit a lot of those. He's an incredible player. He's had an unbelievable season. But ultimately, if you're getting Joel Embiid in, in post-up situations and he's settling for a fadeaway jump shot, I think you feel pretty good about that. And with the Bucks having such a, a, a big body in Brook Lopez that not a lot of teams have, I think it certainly works in their favor uh, if he can stay out of foul trouble, which, of course, is, is the big question with anyone guarding Joel. So on the flip side to that, you know, who would normally take Trey if the Hawks do happen to advance? Is it, is it Drew Holiday who just automatically gets that matchup? Yeah, it'll be Drew, and and Trey didn't exactly have a lot of fun playing on Drew Holiday this season. So, yeah, I, I don't think that there would be any question there. Drew Holiday would go to to Trey Young. I th- I think that that would be the the obvious matchup there, and we know that he's obviously going to have the size and the strength. And we've seen you know, Ben Simmons in, in certainly even more size and the length that he has has at least made life difficult for Trey Young. But uh, he seems to be he seems to be not scared of the moment. Let's say that, Josh. So we look at what happened there in Game 7. We, we, we look back. No, no matter who 
Milwaukee plays in the next round. You know, what are the areas that Bucks fans can look at and go, okay, we, we got over the, the hump here. We we beat the Nets, who were the championship favorites, I think before the playoffs started and even through the first round. We we beat them in game seven. Um, do people go, well, that that's, you know, there's letdown potential. Well, for Bucks fans, you know, when they look at what they did in that game seven, you know, where are the room for improvement? I can see a couple standing, you know, really staring me right in the face here. But what can the Bucks fan go, well, we won this, but we can still do this better. Yeah, I mean, I think offensively, if you look across the, the course of the series, Game 7 was actually their best output. I think they had a 122 offensive rating, and you still didn't look at that game and think that that was Bucks, the Bucks firing on all cylinders. The easy answer is Drew Holiday offensively. I mean, he, he really, really struggled right throughout this series. Fortunately for the Bucks, he showed up in the final five minutes of the fourth quarter, and they needed every one of those nine points that he had in the fourth. But Drew Holiday was well below where he's been all season long, particularly with open jump shots. He came into Game 7 shooting 25% on open jump shots for the series. So, um, you know, it was ugly for him for uh, a lot of the time. And the other, the other thing is that I, I don't think they really took advantage of Brook Lopez and the size that he had offensively as well. So, look, the Bucs, I, I think, on that end of the floor – have significant room for improvement for a team that was one of the top offenses all season long. I think that series in general against Brooklyn turned into a real grind, which is probably not how most people predicted it coming in. But the Bucs have to feel good about their, their chances of, of scoring with more freedom in the next round. Well, yeah, we're here on the road to the finals. and it's Our NBA playoff coverage is that's brought to you by Michelob Ultra. Kane, it's only worth it if you enjoy it. And at 2.6 grams of carbs and 95 calories, we can all enjoy the games a little bit more this season. The Bucks, they would have enjoyed Game 7. You're going to enjoy the rest of uh, the rest of this run into the conference finals and maybe further. And you'll have it covered for us all over on Locked On Bucks as Milwaukee looks to advance to the NBA Finals. Kane, thank you for coming on Locked On NBA with me. Anytime, Josh. Thanks, man. Built Bar is the best tasting protein bar ever. Do you know that Built Bar is not only great tasting because it is, it tastes like a candy bar, really, but it's also healthy. It's good for you. We are talking about a bar here, low calorie, low sugar, low net carbs, but that really, really good amount of uh, of protein. And, and we're talking about a bar that's got just lots of flavors, nine delicious flavors, and they throw in limited time flavors all the time. If you don't know what your favorite flavor is, go and buy a mixed box. You get all nine flavors. 18 bars, so two of each flavor, and you get to try to find out which one of the Built Bars is your favorite. Most of the flavors are 17 grams of protein with just 130 calories, four grams of sugar, and only four grams of net carbs. So go to BuiltBar.com, use the promo code LOCKED15, and you'll get 15% off your first order. The promo code is LOCKED15 for 15% off at BuiltBar.com. Now I'm joined by the new host of the Locked On Pistons podcast. Kukalil is here with me to talk about Game 7, in the Eastern Conference between the Atlanta Hawks and the Philadelphia 76ers. We're both you know, neutral parties, uh, neutral onlookers in this one, Koo. Um, Atlanta wins, of course. I, I didn't mention that. Atlanta wins. They move through to the Eastern Conference Finals. Yeah, How, are you, how surprised are you by this? I mean, I, I think you have to be at least a little bit beat Philadelphia with Embiid, Simmons, and Tobias Harris with Seth Curry. Um, I, I don't think anyone really legitimately gave them a shot. At least I don't think. And I think it's a major upset. Well, the thing is, yes, you've got to you know, take on Joel Embiid, who wasn't himself, but still you know, played a lot of minutes and put up big numbers. But the Hawks did it without DeAndre Hunter. They did it with Bogdan Bogdanovich playing 21 minutes, and he's clearly not right. 
Um, and you're doing it with you know, big performances from Kevin Herter and Daniel Gallinari stepping up defensively. And Nyekara Kongwu doing you know, some pretty good things, especially in the first half when Capella was in foul trouble. Just some really good coaching performances from Nate McMillan um, and really big performance. Even like a, a night from Trey Young tonight, he, he shot 22% from the field, but still getting it done, 21 and 10, setting everyone else up and getting guys in good positions like Herter, like John Collins, who had 14 and 16. Just a masterful team performance to come back against the number one seed uh, from three two and uh, and get that uh, get that win. Uh, to advance to the conference finals, it is absolutely huge from the Atlanta perspective. Let's let's look. We'll talk about Philadelphia in a second, Koo, But let's talk about Atlanta here. How do you think they match up against Milwaukee? Because you know, I wouldn't say they defied expectations. A lot of people picked the Knicks to to beat them. I I didn't. So I wouldn't say that they defied my expectations there. But they they you know, thoroughly dismantled them. And then I didn't really think that they had uh, much of a chance if Embiid was going to be healthy here, and they pushed through. Do they have a shot against the Bucks, or are we just going to keep underrating or underestimating Atlanta? I mean, well, that's the thing. I don't really want to underestimate them again and then look like an idiot because I did it for a third straight time. But, I mean, you have to assume that Milwaukee's probably just going to walk through them. I mean, I, I mean, I have to assume that – I mean, well, one, I just don't think they really have anyone that's going to be able to check Giannis. I, I don't think anyone's going to be able to stop him. I think he's probably going to run um, run havoc with them. But, yeah, I mean, before the series, you got to say the Milwaukee Bucks are massive favorites. I, I don't want to completely sleep in the Hawks because they've already defied me twice. I mean, I, I really don't see how they stop Giannis. And I think getting over the nets for Milwaukee as well is like a big mental hurdle. And getting to the conference finals is like a big, like, like they broke through that wall and now they're like full steam ahead. And I, I think that's going to do wonders for him as well. So I, I don't really think Atlanta has much of a chance against Milwaukee, but I, I said that I didn't think they really had a legitimate chance to beat Philadelphia in seven games and they did. So who knows? Yeah, I, I had the Sixers winning this series in seven, so I, I was a little bit more excited about the Hawks' chances than a lot of people. I, I didn't expect them to win, but again, I, I, again, I don't know who who does stop Giannis on this team because you know the, the best option would probably be DeAndre Hunter, or you could throw Cam Reddish out there, and neither of those guys are going to play. Um, yeah, not that uh, Bogdan Bogdanovich at full health necessarily helps, but he's still another option you can have. Have there that stretches them uh, defensively. It is just going to be... It's hard to see how that happens. But again, they have defied our expectations all the way through. So especially in this series with some huge performances. And I think the thing you got to throw the other way is, you know, how does... You know, can, well, can uh, Milwaukee stop Trey Young? Can they stop what John Collins does? Can they stop when Gallinari and Herder and then Lou Williams fire up? And if Bogdanovich is at full strength, like that, that's a tough offense to try and deal with. So while it might be hard to stop Milwaukee, I think Atlanta's got their own their own strengths that might make things a little bit more challenging for, for the Bucs. Of course, the Bucs have Holiday, they have Giannis, they have Tucker, they have Lopez. So they do have the options there, but it is something that's not just going to be a complete cakewalk to shut down Atlanta's um Atlanta's offense. But, you know, huge congratulations for them to, to get this far and to push into this matchup. But we do have to spend a little bit of this time, Koo, to talk about what the hell happened with Philadelphia. You, you get 31-11 out of Embiid. You get 24-14 and 14 out of Tobias Harris. The criticism is all going to come towards Ben Simmons. Some of it will go towards Doc Rivers because, again, having the best team and losing a playoff series is not. He's done it just so many times, including epic collapses. But what 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 happens with Simmons here? Because the narrative is just going to be all over the place. Simmons must be traded. But who's trading for him? Like, what are you getting for, like, at the absolute nadir of his value? Do you trade him now? Like, what do they do? Well, usually, see, this big thing with me is that I usually 
like to go against this whole narrative running and like I don't really like putting a lot of blame on one guy. It's like I spent the last few days like defending Rudy Gobert and saying you can't just blame it all on him. So I, I'm one of those guys. But this is the rare case where I say like this is legitimate. Ben Simmons has to be more for you. Uh, I, I know a lot. There's going to be some people. I'm I'm going to assume a lot. Of Philadelphia guys are probably going to try to say, well, you know, Tobias had 24 and 24 shots. I mean, Tobias somewhat showed he got you 24, and Embiid had 31 for you. Ben Simmons has to be better. He he just has to be. Um, there there's a point at the end of the game when he passed up a wide open dunk. Uh, it's just there's no the, the big thing with Ben Simmons. It feels like there's not been a huge amount of progress progression with him uh, development with him and I don't know I don't know what you do with him now because the big the whole thing with the process was to be able to get these cracks at the top of the draft and you figure they thought they got the two guys that they needed with Embiid and Simmons and yes they, they finished with the top seed and they they lost in seven games like when I'm not going to sit here and say they got like this team was awful because they lost in seven games in, in the second round but obviously not reaching their expectations I just don't know what you can really do with Ben Simmons because I mean, they could have traded him from reports. They could have got James Harden earlier in the year, but they didn't really want – the reports where they didn't want to get rid of Ben Simmons. And, I mean, I don't know if that kind of deal I, – I, you have to assume that his value has tanked since then. I, I mean, maybe not tanked, but definitely much lower than it was at that point, especially after another playoff series where, and a, another playoff run, honestly, where it looks like he's just a massive – maybe not a massive negative, but definitely a negative in the playoffs and kind of – his his lack of aggressiveness on offense, his lack of shooting on offense, the free throw struggles, all that on offense makes him somewhat of a of a handicap, I guess you could say, on offense. I don't know what they do. I, I don't know if you trade them because they're both still really young, but I know that fans are impatient. I know a lot of front office get front offices get impatient, especially when you got a superstar like Embiid in a city like Philadelphia. You want to take advantage of that window and and win as soon as possible. So, I mean, I think he probably will be shopped this offseason, but I just – I don't know, man. I don't know what they do. I, I don't think his value is as high as it was at the beginning of the year. Yeah, it's it has – it's can't be. There's no way that it can be as high as it was earlier in the year or a year ago or two years ago. It's dropped off significantly. The problem is is he's on this max contract extension, yeah, max rookie contract extension, that how do you, you know, match that salary up because he's not worth that at the moment. But I, I do feel – I look, he's going to cop – a lot here, Simmons. I do feel sorry for him to a degree because it is, I can't say it's obvious because I don't know the bloke. I, I, I don't, I haven't spoken to him. I don't know that, but it is seemingly clear that it is a mental issue. Like it is not a, he cannot play basketball. It is a, he is absolutely spooked uh, offensively. He is ab- in his own head. Like I cannot make a mistake with the ball. I am a bad shooter and therefore I cannot take any risks with getting the ball out of my hands to shoot because it'll it'll make me look worse where in the end what he's doing is making it worse for himself and for his team. But it, he is in his head. And he said that the other day about the free throws. He said, oh, yeah, it's mental. It's not just the free throws. It is everything that has uh, that has com- come together to be a huge mental issue. And you feel sorry for a guy. Because imagine like we can sit here and we can bash him time and time again. He's got to change. He's got to be traded. Imagine what he goes through at night when we know that the problems that are caused, they're caused because of this mental constriction that he is that he is under that is completely is stopping him from doing what, what he has done in the past like he did that 
in, in his rookie season. He was able to take some of these shots. He did some of this in college. I have no people who have seen, spoken to him or have seen him here behind the scenes. Like he takes jumpers and he hits them, no problem. It is just a, a clear mental problem. And one of the, one of the more fascinating off-season subplots is what Philadelphia does and what Daryl Morey does uh, with Ben Simmons here because, uh, like you, I have absolutely no idea how they get any value. Maybe he heads to the Thunder with a couple of draft picks in exchange for, say, a Kemba Walker. The salaries match there. Maybe that's something that happens and the Thunder get a couple more firsts out of it. I don't know, but there are a lot of questions that need to be answered. But that'll do it for us today, Coop. Thank you for coming on. They can hear all of your Detroit Pistons takes over on Locked On Pistons. Thanks for coming on and making your Locked On NBA debut today. Thank you, man. Thank you for having me. And one thing I will point out, something for people who may not know this guy, I didn't. Embiid is 27. So it's not like he's 23, 24 anymore. I know Ben Simmons is 24, but Embiid is 27 now. He's going to be 28 next year, and he just had another injury. So I don't know if you can take the whole wait-and-see approach to continue anymore. He's getting up there now. Absolutely. They uh, they probably do need to do something. So we'll see how that all pans out. And that'll do it for today's show. Don't forget to follow this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and on the Odyssey app. Tell your friends, leave a review, all of that stuff. You can find me on Twitter as well, at RedRock underscore Beeble. Guys, we are done here. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. See ya.